Hello and welcome to episode 90 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture and politics. I'm Peter Oleggi. And I'm Peter Lim. Our special guest today is Dr. Menan Duplessis, Honorary Research Associate in Linguistics at Stellenbosch University and Visiting Professor in Linguistics at the University of Kentucky, from where she's just joined us. She has a PhD from the University of Cape Town on Khoikhoi Linguistics, on which she has published chapters and articles with a very interesting book in progress. Earlier, in the tension-filled 1980s, she penned two fine novels, A State of Fear and Long Live, both published by that grand old publisher of South Africa, David Phillip, and which was awarded two literary prizes. Welcome. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about growing up uh, in South Africa and uh, honing your literary skills, and and perhaps tell us a little bit about how that led to an interest in uh, Khoikhoi linguistics. Okay, yes, well, it's quite a long story. Um, I I started writing at a very early age. I became conscious and politically aware at about the same time, even while I was still at high school. And I was the kind of child, possibly obnoxious, who used to pen letters to the newspaper. And at one point, it was announced that the government was going to give free textbooks to white schools, but not everybody else. And that was a kind of tipping point for me. And it started a letter campaign and Various um, students from other high schools joined me and we embarked on a political campaign of protest. And then I was writing at that time, poetry mainly, but then when I went to university, I was involved in the um, NUSAS, which was the National Union of South African Students. And uh, it was was a very difficult time for me because I was partly a poet, but I, I felt this obligation to be involved politically, although I'm not really a political animal, and I found it... Extremely difficult you, when you're standing on the steps of a cathedral and pe- people people come at you with tear gas and, and batons. That for me was not an easy thing to handle. And I, I must confess I went through a number of breakdowns. I didn't really cope terribly well with all that. But I did at the same time have an academic career. And I'd always been interested in languages. I did Latin at school and I'm bilingual in English and Afrikaans. And at university I did German and Italian. And then after I returned at one point I, I developed an interest in African languages and I studied Kosa. And uh, I was then a student with John Kitsir, who introduced um, the beginnings of a course in linguistics. We didn't have a department at that point. And that was when my interest in formal linguistics began. And then subsequently they instituted a department with um, Professor Roger Lass as the head. And he has been my lifelong mentor, actually. And that was when my uh, academic career in linguistics began. But at the same time, this was in the early 80s. And as you may know, and the struggle at that period was intensifying. And I became more and more involved in the United Democratic Front while trying to finish a second novel. I'd, I'd finished the first one while I was still a student, and then I was trying to write it. So I, at that point, I had to abandon my... I was busy with a PhD in semantics, in linguistics. And it was all just too much for me. I really wasn't the kind of person that could handle all these things. I didn't have that... that I didn't have a terribly thick skin, but I nevertheless felt I had to do these things. And I never really juggled them terribly well, but then eventually I finished the second novel... Um, then I met my husband, and um, we had children. I, I, I became quite ill, I, I suppose, as a result of all of these tensions. And then I returned eventually, belatedly, to academia, thinking I wanted to go back into pure linguistics. But I was by then increasingly interested in African languages and started pursuing that and stumbled, really, upon um, the Khoisan languages and the fact that it was really quite difficult to get hold of material on them, and I became more and more obsessed, and finally I turned that interest back into a return to academia, and that was the 
to cut it short. What about then just sketching for the uh, listeners the broad significance of Khoisan studies and in particular Khoisan languages um, for Southern African and South African scholarship? Yes. Where do they fit in, in other words? Okay, that is that's a really interesting question. Well, there is. Um, I, I have found particularly there's a, there's a, a multidisciplinary interest. You find uh, historians, archaeologists, and anthropologists, even historians of art history, be, um, interested in what some of the Khoisan texts have to give us as ways of understanding the history and 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 interpreting the rock art. And I've often found, I, I work in a group with colleagues from different disciplines, sometimes they have really an, only a sketchy knowledge of, of the different families and the different groups involved. So sometimes their their assumptions are, are, are quite mistaken simply because they don't know enough about the languages. So that's one aspect of it. I think that for purposes of multidisciplinary understanding of Southern African history and the past and the, and the prehistoric past, it is necessary to understand a bit more about these languages. And then, of course, for the communities themselves, it it obviously has a, a deep significance in terms of their their own identity and, and their history. And then I think thirdly, from a, a purely linguistic point of view, yeah, it's one of those things where you, just as astrophysicists explore the universe, we study human language, and you want to know as much as possible about the typologies and the structures that are out there. What do different languages do? Because they certainly don't all behave like the Indo-European languages, and it's simply that that pure abstract curiosity. What What is it that languages can do, and how do they do these things? Just picking up on this point, what can we say about the relationship between uh, people in Southern Africa in the distant past through the study of languages, for example, the history of trade mm-hmm. or the history of ritual or the history mm-hmm. of various cultural practices. Um, you've done quite a lot of research on the role of cliques in languages, for instance. Mm-hmm. So the interaction, for example, between mm-hmm. Khoi Khoi and Kosa or, mm-hmm. or uh, Isizulu-speaking people yes. and so on. Yes, that is one of the um, areas of debate. In fact, it's it's it, it, it's quite heavily contested, so I'd perhaps prefer to avoid too much of the controversy. But what you, uh, if I could just pick up on what you're saying, I think that is such an interesting point about um, past trails and, and um, trade routes and, and contacts. Um, there is one Khoisanist who has a theory that there was some kind of East African connection and that people migrated downward, uh, belonging to the speakers of the queer family of languages. Um, but it, it, it's a debate. And there are not many people involved in this debate, so at times it becomes a little heated. But but I think it's a really interesting one. And I was actually telling my students at Kentucky just just recently, uh, the Damara people in Namibia who speak um, a dialect of uh, Namibian Kwekwe have that the board game, which I think in America is known as Mankala. They have a version of it, and it's called Khus in in their language. But you find that throughout Africa, and it's believed to have come originally from some part of the Near East. And I think it is just so interesting if one could perhaps trace the 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 pathway whereby that that knowledge of that game spread on Africa and that's just one tiny example in you know, other things would be tobacco of course and and guns and the tracing of the cliques themselves is is another whole story i understand yes i mean the the, the received wisdom is that the 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 cliques present in the nguni languages and um Sutu and some of the other Bantu languages of the Okavango region are simply borrowed but the picture is a little more complex than that. Other people feel that, well, perhaps some of the words were borrowed and then click sounds were used for alternative purposes, perhaps to, for expressive purposes is one theory I've heard, and perhaps for purposes of lexical avoidance is another theory. I, I have a, a theory of my own which I'm developing, but it's highly controversial. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, perhaps I'd better not dwell on that. It's, it is really a very um, elaborate argument mm. that I'm, I'm busy putting together. And you and I have some uh, intersection in our current research in that we're sort of sharing uh, an interest in the in the free state, and um, you were very much focused on the Qurana and the Qura or the Aura language, and um, you and your colleagues have made some remarkable discoveries um, on this language. Uh, through interviews with the elders. Yes, that's right. Yes, I I must say, it wasn't me who discovered them. It was a a late colleague of mine, Mike Beston, who was a young, rising, brilliant historian, actually. And having returned from the Netherlands, where he um, did his PhD, he he was based at the University of the Free State in the Department of Anthropology with Professor Peter Rasmus and went out into the communities trying to track down people of the old Korana people using the records from the 1930s. Census returns were... I think it was about the last time that people actually identified themselves as Korana. After that, it became the apartheid terms of, you know, coloured and, and so on. And he actually found these old people, and he, with various other friends, all of whom were from local communities. They drove around, they went to farms, they went to the local village, and they'd go to the store on Saturday morning and spoke to people and visited farms and spoke to the people. And in that way, finally tracked down people. And while they were doing this work, which was historical, really, and anthropological, happened to discover that a few of the elders actually still spoke some of the language. In some cases, it was a few fragments, but in one or two cases, it was remarkably fluent. And Mike... Because we we assumed that it was extinct. It was believed Mm. to. By Mm. then, it was more or less tacitly Mm. assumed to have become extinct. Nobody had any interest in it. And and all that we have of this language, which, by the way, is is thought to be be the closest that we have to the actual Cape language spoken when the first Dutch settlers settled at the Cape, the Cape Quaker language. So this is Kora or Kora in the language itself. We have about 62 texts that were written down in the language and only two recordings, one terribly short. It was just a speaker reciting a list of words to illustrate the different cliques and a short speech in the, from the 1930s. So this is the only sound recordings we had, although it was documented. So we have a gr- couple of grammatical sketches, um, several vocabularies, and, and these texts, as I say. So it wasn't an unknown quantity, but it was just not that well recorded. So then we were sitting around after our first foray into the field, and we decided that what we should really do is try and restore this language. I mean, and the people that I was speaking to were from the community, and we were intensely excited by this project. And the idea was to reclaim all these texts, which are published, but just not accessible. Or in some cases, the translations are in German, so again, not that accessible to people in South Africa, put them all together, have a chapter on the history, which is to be contributed by Professor Peter Rasmus, have an account of the grammar, account of the structures, and a description of the sounds, and then also have a dictionary. And then the big dream was we could have an online, a complementary publication, which would have this talking dictionary illustrated by our sound files, and then possibly even linked into the texts. So that was the plan, and we were terribly excited by it. We thought it was a great project, but we just met with such indifference locally in South Africa. It was really difficult to obtain funding eventually, after really almost giving up. Um, because it was not just a rejection. It was, in some cases, actual contempt that, that our project met. It, by, by the elite uh, funders, in some ways. In, yes, indeed. Mm. I, really disheartening. But luckily, we did get funding from the, um, the School of Oriental and African Studies. They have an endangered language. At the University of London. Yeah. They have this endangered languages documentation project. We got a small grant for purposes of the field work, which we then carried out, and we interviewed two of the speakers, only one of whom in the end was really, really fluent, 
and still even preserves the clicks of the language. And we got to her in December 2011. We had to go when everybody could be assembled. And it was a week before she turned 100. Mm. So that is how old she was. And the following year, we, we did a return visit just to tell her how we'd been getting on. We took her all sorts of gifts and things and an album of the photographs and a sample of the book that, as far as we had got with it. And, you know, she she didn't really recognize us. She she was so much more frail than she had been when we worked with her. Um, I'm not sure that she really remembered what the project was even about. So it really was a case. I mean, it sounds melodramatic, but it really was a case of having got there perhaps, perhaps just in time. And now we're at the phase of trying to put the book together. It's been a long, difficult road. With, we don't haven't, we have no support back in South Africa. But... Um, Luckily, uh, there have been a few people who sustain me. My former professor, Roger Lass, is my great mentor, and he's been an encouragement all the way along in my family, and friends and colleagues here in America, actually. And you've um, uh, touched upon uh, there the possibility of the digital dimension, Mm -hmm. which would obviously in some ways make it uh, uh, easier for Mm -hmm. some communities Mm -hmm. to access, Mm -hmm. hopefully. Um, and, and you've been gathering all these um, texts and narratives and words even. Mm-hmm. You've been going back to the sort of um, early um, experts in the field, Wilhelm and uh, Dorothea Blake, and, uh, and you're starting to crunch all this stuff together. And uh, it strikes me in considering the digital dimension that <laughs> at first there's this great resonance between your forthcoming book uh, which is on the Cora mm. and may even be entitled that, and and the fact that this is the name of the software and database used by our host Matrix, yes, <laughs> who named it after the Senegalese or the West African or Malian, I'm not quite sure the the West African instrument. I love that. So there's yes. this wonderful congruence between Michigan State here and and your own work. And, and do you know that the Nama people actually have a musical instrument called a Cora? So the, the affinities are even more extraordinary. Which is in many ways... It's a th- similar th- instrument. It's a similar yes. instrument. Amazing. Yes. I'm just wondering here about the uh, how scholars can uh, make use here of digitization of the oral narratives, the, the old text, uh, the recordings, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. a dictionary. And I understand that it's becoming rather more complex now with regard to legislation around Indigenous knowledge rights. Yes, there has been recent... Apparently the new new legislation has recently been implemented, but it was deeply problematic, and now there, there have been endless debates and discussions and additions, and the whole thing is in a state of flux, and, and many people don't completely understand the implications of the bill as it stands at the moment. And I mean, the, the texts that we are working, wanting to republish have all been previously made available, and it's a question of old-fashioned copyright. Um, and we have one orphan work, so it's a question of whether the publisher is going to be prepared to take on that risk or whether we leave those texts out, which would be a great pity. But then that then raises the question of the communities themselves, the mm. often small, uh, localised communities, um, often with uh, leaders or captains, mm. captains, mm. And I understand this is also quite Mm. a a complex uh, issue for Indigenous peoples. It it is complex, Mm. yes, and South Africa has always... Who owns what, in other words? Exactly, exactly. But but it's not insurmountable. And in our case, we worked from the outset with members from a particular community. And in fact, the son of the present-day Captain Kralshoek was part of that circle with, with Mike, 
who went around and, and first discovered these speakers. And the present-day Captain Crosshook has greeted us and uh, allowed us to visit him on a number of occasions and has given his blessing to the project and has even volunteered to give a foreword. So, but there are other groups, other factions. So it, it, it is difficult. You simply have to keep working with communities, explaining what you're doing. And right now, um, there's a member of the community in Bloemfontein. When I say community, that's, that's a little grand. Mm. In fact, people have multiple identities in South Africa, perhaps as they do here as well. And in some cases, that consciousness of having Khoi ancestry is, is a new thing. It's part of the uh, conscious Khoisan revival. But anyway, there are people who seek to reclaim that, that ancestry and that identity. And one of these people is working with some of his neighbors and trying in his, on, on, in his own individual capacity almost to revitalize the language. And he's been desperately needing access to our materials. And, of course, I've given him everything that we have, including all of the 900 individual sound files that I have now edited. And I sent them to him via my Google Drive, and he wrote back, and said, I've got them. I can see them on my cell phone. So he's giving these classes. And to illustrate a word, he just has to find it on his cell phone and he can play it, which I love. Well, that actually brings up something very interesting that I've discussed with uh, Deong Onyani, who you've met during your visit here at Michigan State, our mm, yeah. uh, wonderful linguist, uh, particularly of the Swahili coast, but also a great scholar of endangered mm. African languages uh, in regards to the Internet and kind of the... the mm the possibilities that the digital uh, medium has, but also the great dangers. Uh, because on the one hand, right, you can, through Google Drive, share these uh, resources with somebody, obviously, who is deeply, deeply uh, at, uh, invested in preserving the language and wants to teach it to the newer generations. But on the other hand, the, the same people who are on those cell phones are being bombarded with languages other than their own, and particularly these dominant languages, which in Africa tends to be older colonial languages, but not always. Sometimes it's the major African languages. Uh, of course, in, in uh, on the East Coast, we're talking about Swahili primarily, and other places might be uh, languages like Hausa. Uh, in South Africa, I'm not sure which one might qualify for that, probably English uh, to a larger extent. So how do you see the digital? Is it a, is it a force that can uh, hold out some hope for endangered African languages, or is it ultimately something that um, will undermine even further these languages that are sometimes spoken by just a handful uh, or a few dozen or a few hundred people? Mm -hmm. and, and what's lost if that happens? What mm -hmm. kind of knowledge mm -hmm. is lost, and why is that important? Yes, that's, that's a really a difficult question to answer, because I think it is, I think it is a double-edged thing, as, as, you, as you say. I mean, uh, well, maybe because I'm an optimist, I'm inclined to think or believe, hope that the digital will help us, will assist people to preserve their languages at the very least. Um, people can, people even do their own documentations, uploading material, and Google has made a, a platform freely available for people who want to do that. Although you, you do have to be careful as well, because in, in conventional language archives, there are all sorts of specific protocols in place and levels of permission and access, because... Sometimes, it depends on the material, but suppose you've got sustained narratives. Uh, there can be content that the community decides is really private and is not just to be put out there and made available to everybody. So one does have to be sensitive about that. But then your other question about... Yeah, it, 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 television, for example, has a massive impact on the languages that people use. Or YouTube, for instance, YouTube, or Facebook, or Twitter. Absolutely it does. And yes, we are losing these languages, and 
I mean, I think it's a common statistic. Almost every linguist trots out that oh, there are 6,500, perhaps 7,000 languages in the world. And it's commonly said that by the end of the century, perhaps half of those will, will have vanished. And is this a tragedy? Well, I think we can have an emotional response to that. And I think as a linguist, it's a tragedy, particularly if we've not documented them, because then those are gone forever. And it means that our knowledge of the, the great variety and the range of structures and typologies is not going to be fully known to us. And also we can't then reconstruct languages if we don't have enough data. You need to have extensive data sets in order to, to extrapolate back and get an understanding of relationships and how languages have perhaps been in contact with one another or how they've developed out of one another. So I think that from a scientific point of view, it is a great loss. And I know that typically people from communities themselves say, but that is our identity. And they also say, that, but there is so much of our, of our traditional knowledge that is locked up in the in in the very words of the language. And linguists might might quibble about that because, I mean, it's possible to construct an argument that says, look, you can express almost anything in any language. It, it may not be exactly the same, and sometimes you don't have a single word, and sometimes it's very difficult. But you can nevertheless do it. So, it's debatable whether a word lost is necessarily a world lost, as, as some people will proclaim. I'm on the side of the skeptics there, I think. But nevertheless, I think because communities themselves have so much invested in that identity, particularly marginalized communities, whose lang the, the very ones whose languages are under threat, and so much has been taken from them that for this to disappear as well, I, I think it's a human tragedy and it's a, it's a cultural tragedy. Well, there's a lot there to ponder uh, deeply on. So thanks so much, Dr. Duplessis, for speaking to Africa past and present. Thank you for having me. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.